Good morning and greetings to each of you. As most of you are aware, I've been preaching through the book of Philippians. And um, currently I'm in the middle of chapter 3. When I began this series this summer, I had no idea that I would have the privilege of personally walking among the ancient ruins of Philippi um, before this series was over. And so two weeks ago this past Thursday, uh, we visited ancient Philippi uh, for a couple of hours. It wasn't real long, but, uh, but it, we at least had a bit of time before we had the two-hour drive back to Thessalonica to catch our afternoon flight to Lesbos. And it really was one of the highlights of the trip for several reasons. First, because of the relevance of what I was studying in Philippians, but beyond that, it was also different than the more developed or uh, touristy parts of Athens and Corinth, which are far more popular than what this is. This is still an active archaeological site. In fact, there was a backhoe operating there while we were there. It was just kind of unique to see that, um, you know, working right there in the ruins. And we talked to some archaeologists there as well. So this morning, I want to take a more in-depth and historical look at Philippi. And it's, it's going to be a history lesson in a lot of ways. And what I hope can be accomplished this morning is that by looking at this and seeing this, it will add a measure of depth and color to the overall picture of what was going on uh, behind the scenes in Philippians uh, and so forth. So we're going to uh, basically focus on Acts 16 this morning, um, kind of providing the narrative of what was happening and then showing a lot of pictures. And I will tell you right now, I'm not offended if children want to sit up front here or younger ones so that they can see pictures better. There's a lot of pictures that we're going to be looking at this morning and, uh, and so forth. <clears throat> First of all, though, when I uh, looked out the window this morning as the sun came up, it reminded me of the morning that we were at Philippi. This is what it looked like there uh, as we were heading down into the ruins um, about 8.30. There wasn't much we could see initially. Luckily, the light burned off the fog, and we were able to see quite a bit later on. But that, uh, that's what it looked like as we walked down to the ruins from the museum. This is an old picture, but an aerial shot of what the area in Philippi looked like. Now, it doesn't look like this today, um, in that there is no road going through the middle of the ruins anymore. Um, so I'm not sure when this picture was taken. But you see the mountain right in the background with a temple on top. And we didn't really learn much about that. But these are the ruins of the city, the amphitheater over here. And uh, that is what we got to explore, or a lot of that, while we were, were there, uh, spending our time there. So like I said, um, I'm calling this a historical look at Philippi. And let's, like I said, start in Acts uh, and see a little bit how this developed. Reminder that Philippi was the first European church 
But backing up to Acts 15, after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Paul took the letter to the churches. Uh, just a second here. Um, Paul took a letter to the churches in Antioch, telling them about the decision in... Um, and so there you can see a little bit, going from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and that's where things are in Acts 15.35. It's where we're going to start um, to reading here just pretty soon. But the journey, just to put in context, the journey from Jerusalem to Antioch is nearly 400 miles. And at 15 to 20 miles a day walking, that was probably a four-week journey. And so I'm only going to reference that here, but as we keep looking at Paul's journey, just think about the time that is involved. You know, it might be a verse or two in Scripture, if that much, and it could be months of walking, um, or weeks at least of walking and so forth. And so let's just keep that in mind. So he went up to Antioch. And then jumping in at verse 36 of Acts 15. And after some days, Barnabas said, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So here we see from Antioch, after this sharp disagreement, uh, they parted ways, and Paul headed for his hometown of Tarsus, even further up around the Mediterranean Sea there, and he had every intention of visiting all the churches that he had planted previously in the Asia Minor, but God had other plans for him, as we're going to see, uh, instead sending him to Europe. Now just jumping ahead to Acts 16 and continuing, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by his brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in the numbers daily. So Paul continued delivering the message that was decided in, um, in Jerusalem as he visited these churches going along. And that was quite a long journey up there. I, did not, I don't know what the distance is of that, but that's a long ways up across what is now modern-day Turkey, up into Lystra. And then we continue in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they passed by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Something I want you to think about when you read scripture. When you see the word Macedonia, think Greece. For me, oftentimes in the past, I've probably kind of confused Mesopotamia and Macedonia. But Mesopotamia is uh, down between the Euphrates and uh, Tigris rivers, whereas Macedonia is northern Greece. And so uh, think about it in that way. When you, when you read scripture and when you see that. So there again, this was a long ways up through there to Troas from Lystra. And he came up through here, and they wanted to come over th uh, through here, but God told him not to. Here's the seven churches that we read about. Um, a little bit later, uh, I don't see it listed on here, is Thyatira is right down in here. But, but so Paul had many days' journeys up to Troas there. Also, this is modern-day Istanbul right here. And this waterway here and the waterway here, that is what separates Europe from Asia. And so that's uh, when you talk about the Asian minor, it's on this side of that. And on beyond that is Europe. Continuing in verse 11 and 12. So setting trail for sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrake and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So from Troas, they went across um, to an island there and then on over to Neapolis, and then the short journey, which was a harbor there, and on to Philippi. To give you a little bit of a view of the topography in the area, this is what it looks like. Kavala is what is, scripture is called Neapolis. So that's where they would have come in, and there's a mountain range there to go up, and then there's a really a flat, and then Philippi is about 9 to 10 miles up the road there at the base of those mountains. Here's a picture of modern-day uh, Kavala, which would have been Neapolis. So this is the port, the harbor that Paul would have come in on. And this is, there was a rather steep climb out of Neapolis up toward Philippi. And this is the Via Ignatia, a Roman road built about 150 years before Christ. Uh, and this is the condition of that even today. It's been unearthed there. And so this is the main road. Uh, this was the main Roman road across southern Europe uh, that was built by the Romans during the Roman Empire. So that just gives us, so Paul arrived in Philippi. Now we're going to step back in time and look at a bit of the history of Philippi itself. <clears throat> When Paul arrived in Philippi in about 50 AD, Philippi had been in existence for more than 400 years already. So this was an old town. Um, now, just the only thing I could think of in context, the Jamestown settlement 
down in uh, Virginia is, is a, just over 400 years old, the original settlement there from Jamestown. So that gives a little bit of uh, perspective here. Philippi began as a small agricultural settlement called Cronides in 360 BC. So 360 BC, and they quickly found themselves under the attack from the Thracians that were interested in their territory because of the local gold mines around. So to put this into perspective a little bit, this all, this would have been during what we are called the silent years between the New Old Testament and the New Testament. There's about 400 years of silence there. So this would have been happening after or right at the close of the Old Testament, what we read about in the Old Testament. So these uh, uh, people that started this settlement called upon King Philip II of Macedon to protect them against these attacks. And um, I will tell you that I didn't learn all this stuff while I was in Philippi. As I was researching and trying to put some of this history together, I learned a lot that was, that was going on. King Philip of Macedon is the father of Alexander the Great. And we heard about him on Friday night in the school play. But he, they called on him to come and protect them from these invaders that were trying to uh, take the country away from them. In 356 BC, he came to the aid of Cronitis and realized the potential of this small settlement and started building fortification walls around it to protect them from the invaders and so forth. And this is an artist's rendition of what that might have looked like uh, after, back in 356 BC, when they built the walls and, um, and protected this. They built, the fortification walls were seven to eight feet thick, and it was more than two mile perimeter around this, and they had defensive towers at regular intervals around the city. It was during this time also that Paul built, uh, uh, that Paul, that King Philip built the first theater um, in, in this settlement and so forth, which is over there to the, to the right. This is a view from the amphitheater looking out over the uh, valley, if you will, this is remains of the wall uh, that was built back in 356 BC. Um, there are also this retaining wall around the amphitheater uh, was built by King Philip back about 350 BC. That's the original retaining wall around the theater, still in place more than 2,300 years later. Um, but uh, the theater itself has been rebuilt several times, but is still there today. And it, it almost appeared as if it might be used sometimes because there's lights set up and so forth. But, um, but we were able to explore that and go walk around on it and so forth. This is the entrance into the, the theater, a view from the top out over the valley. Um, 
gives you a little bit of perspective on the size of this and so forth. We had uh, the privilege, or we took the privilege, the opportunity to sing How Great They Are from their, the group of us as we uh, were getting ready to leave. And there was a group from the Netherlands that were sitting over in here, and I think they kind of joined in with us. They at least knew the tune, and they were, uh, they were glad to hear that we were doing that. <clears throat> so they, King Philip also changed the name of this settlement from Cronides to Philippi, obviously named after himself. And he made sure that he was given sufficient gold to fund his military campaigns and the, um, the conquest that he was on. And so that was really what enabled him. So Philippi enabled him to expand his kingdom. He was assassinated in 336, a mere 20 years after helping Cronitis and founding Philippi. And during that time, he had brought most of Greece together under the League of Corinth through war and diplomacy. And so he had kind of united Greece in that 20-year period. At the end of his reign, this is what it looked like. All of this was ruled by um, King Philip, and I think even up in here, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Philippi is up in there. But so all of this was controlled by, um, by King Philip. The Persian Empire loomed very large over here. Uh, it, uh, and so that was the way that things looked at the time of his death. Upon King Philip's death, his son, Alexander the Great, took over. And what's amazing about Alexander the Great, for several things, he took the throne when he was age 20. And he died 13 years later, and yet had incredible, had done incredible things in those 13 years. By the end of um, the, within 13 years, he had continued his father's ambitions of enlarging the empire and had invaded the massive Persian empire to the east and within 13 years, the Alexander's Greek Empire spread over 3,000 miles east to west. Uh, and all of that without modern transportation or military equipment. It's pretty unbelievable what he did in 13 years. That is the size of the empire of Alexander the Great. This is Greece over here. This is where we started. And he invaded all through here, down into Egypt, what is Israel, the Mesopotamia, most of Turkey, all the way over into India, and possibly even China, that he conquered in 13 years on foot. And it is just pretty unbelievable. Just to put it in perspective a little bit on a modern day map, this is the same area. So he had Greece, Bulgaria up into Romania, all the way over to the Adriatic Sea, all of Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Israel, part of Egypt, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and then on into India and potentially China is what he controlled 
within 13 years. Here is just another uh, picture of what the Greek Empire looked like on, at Alexander the Great's death. He died in 323 BC at the age of 32 or 33, possibly poisoned, possibly drinking himself to death with alcohol, having achieved a more expansive kingdom than any other king in history. And his last words to the question of who should succeed him, it was in, uh, in Greek, but it basically it was translated, be translated to the strongest. Um, that was his last words. This brought Greek influence across the Mediterranean and the Middle East in language and arts and politics and architecture and science and philosophy, all a legacy of Alexander the Great's tutor, who was none other than Aristotle himself. So Greek thought and practice permeated this entire empire, now divided between two generals after his, his death. And um, I'm going to jump ahead 150 years to the Roman Empire. When the Romans began expanding their empire, they conquered the region of Macedonia in about 168 BC, which, like I said, was about 150 years later. As the Roman Empire expanded, the Romans built the infrastructure to go along with this and to facilitate the movement of troops and equipment. And the most, worthy of, most noteworthy of these was the Roman roads that were built across the empire. And as already was mentioned, Paul traversed from Neapolis to Philippi on the Via Ignati, Nadia, and uh, he would have arrived here in the east. The Via Ignatia goes right through the center of Philippi and on beyond. Um, it was built in the mid-century, mid-century, uh, second century BC, about 150 BC or so. A 700-mile road, about 20 feet wide, all through southern Europe, connecting what is now Istanbul to the Adriatic Sea west of Albania. And this just gives you a picture of where this road went. All the way from Istanbul, all the way across the mountains over into the Adriatic Sea in Albania. And right here you see Neapolis and Philippi right in the middle of that. Here's another picture of the Via Ignatia. The road is now more than 2,100 years old, but is still in pretty amazing condition in a lot of ways. Showed you this picture from Neapolis on the way up. Within Philippi and the ruins, this is the main road going through town here. Is, is still, uh, the remains are there. We'll come back to it later. This is the prison believed where Paul and Silas were held. Some of it is obviously in better shape than others. There were a few signs along the way also labeling the road as that. Um, it's just pretty amazing to see and to walk on. Here uh, is a group of archaeologists working down here at the end, and we had asked them, and they said, yeah, this is the Via and Nag, Nag I, I can't even say it anymore, but uh, 
the English translation of it would be the Ignatian way, would be another term that you hear. And here you can see the road all along the side here. The main part of town is more down in here, but this is the, the road all the way from east to west. And even a more um, pronounced stone that wasn't broken up as badly along the way. So Octavian was 19 when Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC. In October 42 BC, two years later, Octavian and Mark Antony's forces defeated those of the assassins, Brutus and Cassius, at the Battle of Philippi. Again, that goes right back to Philippi. He renamed the city um, I'm not sure how you say that, but again, naming it after Julius Caesar, but he renamed the city of Philippi. Over the next 11 years, Octavian ruled the western part of the Roman Empire, while Antonio ruled the eastern part. The relationships deteriorated between them before Octavian defeated Antony in 30 BC, thus becoming the sole ruler of the entire Roman Empire. In January of 27 BC, the Roman Senate conferred upon Octavian the title Augustus, meaning revered and a word equally applicable to gods and man. So, I mean, basically, he was equating himself to God. And after being renamed Augustus, he changed the name of Philippi once again to include Augusta in that. But this is who we know as Caesar Augustus. Octavian is Caesar Augustus, a Roman Empire emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And we read in Luke 2.1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And so this literally came, originated, Octavian uh, made his mark in a lot of ways beginning in Philippi. He reigned until about A.D. 17, so when Jesus was a teenager. So he was, he was the Roman emperor uh, until Jesus' teenage years. The Roman Empire continued to grow throughout the second century A.D., and I didn't do a lot of work on this and somewhat incomplete, but around this is what the Roman Empire looked like um, at, up to about, I don't know, 117 or later, but notice the difference here. So when the Greek Empire started here in Greece and went east, whereas the Roman Empire, here's Rome, and it did not get much of Turkey, but all around the Mediterranean Sea here and all the way up into Great Britain, um, the Roman Empire included all of that around the Mediterranean Sea. And what is interesting is that that enabled Paul's missionary journeys to be much easier because of the roads and the infrastructure that were there for troops and so forth to move it. But, but it's like God was preparing the way for the gospel to be spread throughout this area uh, when, when the time came. Um, so then we come to Paul in Philippi. Um, 
And we're going to read a bit more here of the account of Paul in Philippi and then, uh, yeah, and continue to look at some more pictures from the ruins there. So setting sail from Troas, uh, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And that, um, again, that's significant that this is called a leading city of the district of Macedonia and Roman colony. He's, he's really emphasizing the importance of the Roman Empire in this. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, and that was from back in uh, the Asian Minor, seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. <clears throat> so this, you know, Lydia was from modern-day Turkey, and being a trader so far from home is another indication of how much people did travel at this time on these roads and so forth, probably due to the roads. About a half mile from these ancient ruins is the Gangetes River, and it is believed to be the site of Lydia's baptism. And um, there is uh, a little bit of the river, and and it's a beautiful, serene site. We just had a few minutes to stop here as we were leaving because it's only it's not right there by the ruins, but this is what the river looks like. And what happens, the river's coming through here, and they divert part of it around here. And under a couple of bridges here, and here's where people can go down into the river to be baptized. Um, and there's seating area there that you can sit and watch as well and so forth. And it was just a beautiful, I, I don't know, just a, I could have spent a lot of time there. I love a little stream like that and so forth. But it is believed this is where Lydia was baptized, um, the first European convert. And uh, this is a monastery that's there on the grounds as well. <clears throat> Continuing in, in Acts 16, verse 16. And, I, and we were going to the place of prayer, and we met a slave girl who had the spirit of divini divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, they put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, 
We notice here in chapter 16 that Rome is mentioned several times, and I'll, I'll try to highlight this as we go along, but it's just emphasizing the extent of Rome's influence on the culture of that, that, in that city. So Paul was, and Silas were dragged to the forum, it says marketplace or agora, and there's a large public, outdoor public gathering place that are lined with shops and other buildings. And this is the Agora, and it is it's very large. Uh, you see it all the way around here. And in the middle, I think it would have been mostly open, but it would have been around here would have been shops and stuff. So this is likely the area where Paul and Silas were drugged and condemned to die and so forth. It's interesting. There's three or four steps going up into whatever's surrounding here. There's drainage ditches along the side here to drain the water off and, and so forth. But uh, this, these are just some pictures of the, the forum or the agora uh, that likely where Paul and Silas were condemned. Not all of these were my pictures, but I found some others online. But that just gives you a good picture of, of where they were tried. And so they made a very public example of them, accusing them of introducing ideas that simply weren't acceptable to Roman culture. But when her, uh, that's not the right verse, and so let, uh, I apologize, I'll read this and disregard that. Um, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell before Paul and Silas. Then they brought them out and said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he baptized. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And they brought them into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. <clears throat> so um, this is a view from what is claimed to be the prison where Paul and Silas were held. And you can literally overlook this forum where they were likely tried. And so it is just, and this is the tractor that I was talking about that was working out there while we were there uh, at this. And here is what they claim is the pri prison of Paul and Silas. Um, it's not what I imagined. Um, and I guess there's some question of the accuracy of it, but this is what is traditionally recognized and remembered as, as the prison that Paul and Silas were held. And here's a couple of pictures of us reading this story, this account while we were there, and also just taking some pictures there. Um, and I guess this is where I had put that verse. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the, these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, 
and have thrown us into prison, and do they not now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Again, the emphasis on the fact that they were Roman citizens was very important, and they would have treated them differently <clears throat> had that been the case. And I had to think in Romans, uh, in Philippians 3, the next sermon that I'll be preaching from there, it talks about that our citizenship is in heaven, that Paul is emphasizing, even in the light of the, the fact that the Roman citizenship was so important and it was actually used here to help them. So a little bit about the church in Philippi. This church obviously prospered and, uh, and is evidenced by Paul's affectionate letter to them several years later, about five or six years later probably. And Paul obviously visited here at least once, perhaps more than once, but from snippets of other verses in Scripture, uh, we know that Paul visited here at least once. And starting in Acts 20... <clears throat> After the uproar in Ephesus, this is following the riot in Ephesus, Paul sent for his, the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. So here again, remember, Macedonia is Greece. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Uh, it's modern-day Greece, I should say. And they spent, he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And then it lists several people there and so forth and jump on ahead. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So here Philippi is specifically mentioned that he stayed, spent some time there with them. I don't know how much later this was, but Paul clearly went back and visited them at Philippi. And then just several other places in Corinthians where this is mentioned, which is in southern Greece. He's saying to the Corinthians in his first letter, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, which is northern Greece, for I intend to pass through Macedonians and perhaps will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me in my journey wherever I go. And then again in 2 Corinthians 2.13, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And then in 7.5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And I don't know what all that means, but there was clearly tension there for that. And then there's two... In chapters 8 and 9, it's very interesting description of these Macedonian churches. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So plural, churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, think Philippians, and their extreme poverty, which seems a bit unusual given there were gold mines around, but have overflowed in a wealth of generosity for, on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, but and beyond their means of their own accord. And I'm assuming, or I think that this was likely the Philippians. And then in chapter 9, the beginning, it also says this. 
Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has, already, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, and that's in Macedonia. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So here he's wanting to bring the Macedonians and have them meet up with the, some of the Corinthian believers and so forth. So historical and archaeological evidence suggests that the church started in Acts 16 prospered. There are remains of at least four basilicas among the ruins or churches of ancient Philippi. And while none of them date back to the first century, there's archaeological, archaeological evidence of church buildings as early as the fourth century or in the 300s. So there are churches that go back to the 300s. Some of the ruins are marked with a cross. Um, for example, this. Uh, there's a cross right here as well as up there. And so, which is an indication that this was some Christian structure, likely at some point. <clears throat> and there's ruins that are just unique. And um, it's hard to tell, you know, exactly where the churches were. This is an octagonal-shaped uh, church. And it has some incredibly um, intricate, intricate mosaics on the floor that had been uncovered, and these date back to the 400s and specifically reference the Apostle Paul. But here you can see a little bit of the outline of the sh shape of the octagon around here, the part of it, and then here's the other half. Um, and there's some of the mosaics, and those are just tiny rocks laid in there in designs and so forth um, that have been uncovered, and these date back to the 400s. Um, this was in the museum, and this specifically references the Apostle Paul, and it was found there in one of these as well. And here's another writing or mosaic that in writing uh, there as well. We were not able to go over into this part of it, but in my research yesterday, I discovered that this is a Christian basilica. This was a large Christian church at one point. Um, and those are just various pictures of, of those ruins. And here you can see the Acropolis on top from the other side. It's interesting that the unique shape of the octagonal church is thought to be perhaps the first in Philippi because that is such an unusual shape for a church. Um, and so they, they wonder if it may have been influenced, the design may have been influenced by some other temple or place of worship, but that is not confirmed because it is just simply so unusual. And it's the only place a church of this shape is found there in Philippi as well. And, but what's also interesting is that many of the remains of the basilicas date to the 5th and 6th centuries, so in the 600s or later. And the prosperity of Philippi in these centuries is attributed to Paul and his ministry and the churches in Philippi. Basically, they are what kept things going. 
They were some of the largest and most beautiful churches around at that time, rivaling the basilicas in Thessalonica and Constantinople, uh, or Istanbul today, and the complex cathedral surrounding and, or including the octagonal church was one of the most impressive, uh, they say, back in that time period. Some of Philippi was destroyed by an earthquake in the 600s, but then was rebuilt and invaded in the 800s by the Bulgarians, and then again in the middle, of the, in the middle Ages in the 12th century uh, by the Ottoman Turks, and that's pretty much when it was abandoned and was never rebuilt after that. It's thought that what kept the city alive as long as it did was the Via Ignatia that passed directly through the city, bringing a lot of travelers and traders directly through the city. But since the invasion of the Ottoman Turks in the 1300s, the city of Philippi has laid in ruins and has been uninhabited. So what does this all mean for us today? What's the purpose of this? And it's a good question. I would say several key thoughts or ideas that I thought about as I was contemplating this. Paul was being faithful to God's call. He had no idea that 2,000 years later, we would be talking about what he did in Philippi. So my first point, just simply be faithful where God calls you. You don't know what God may be preparing you to do. Or Philippi was a small town. Probably, uh, you know, not extremely prominent in a lot of ways. We don't read about it a lot otherwise, and yet influential even to us today. And I would just say that we have no idea how God will use our faithfulness to his glory at some point in the future. You know, whether, you know, I don't know what God wants to do through the Christians in Catlett a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now if, if the Lord tarries. But I, I think that it's Lydia and, you know, they didn't know that they were doing anything remarkable. They were being faithful and God used that. And then the Philippians or the Macedonians cared deeply for other believers as seen in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and they showed extreme generosity in spite of their obvious poverty. And I would just say that it never hurts to invest time, energy, and resources in God's kingdom beyond ourselves. Um, God will honor that. God will bless that. And so that's just a few things that I was like, I hope that we can take away from this today. Let's stand together, and I'm going to read um, a prayer from Philippians 1 as our benediction. And... Again, just thinking about that, Paul was writing this to the Philippians within about five or six years of, of this church being started, and it's just a beautiful prayer. And thinking about what God has done through the church in Philippi. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the, end, at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You're dismissed.